Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. BRICS and other developing and developed nations wax and wane in their importance on the global stage, while consumption and interconnectedness both increase. Laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. How do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens International Business Attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every Thursday, we take a bite-sized look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of our international guests. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finances, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us via email and social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. Adam Bigelow grew up in the town of Boring, Oregon. His first trip to Japan was in 1997, and since then he has spent nearly 15 years in Japan with experience ranging from college student to public sector, private sector, and entrepreneurial endeavors. In 2016, after 10 years at a successful startup and handoff of a translation firm specializing in patent translation, he moved back to the Pacific Northwest and now lives in Vancouver, Washington. In addition to consulting for SMEs looking to do business in Japan, he also translates patents Japanese to English and owns and operates an Oregon sunstone mine. Adam is married to his husband, Koda, and has a miniature Shiba Inu dog named Mizuki. Adam, welcome to Global Law and Business. Thank you for being with us. It's good to be here. Adam, welcome and thank you for for being with us. I'd like to hear a little more about all those years in Japan. I spent a little bit less than that in in greater China and know that there was a lot uh, jammed in there. So I would love to hear more about the, the specifics of your experience there. And if you don't mind, just for for my own sake, what exactly is Sunstone? Well, like you mentioned in the, in the intro, I, I first moved to Japan in 1997, and I spent a couple years there as a, as a church missionary. Um, following that, I, I moved back to the U.S. and uh, you know started my college career. And but you know I really wasn't comfortable in the United States at that time, so I so I decided to apply for a fellowship and got back to Japan and, and was uh, a fellow at Hiroshima University for about a year. And then I moved back again to the US uh, where I finished my college degree and I graduated with a degree in Japanese. And then after that, I took a job with the sister state of Oregon, um, which is Toyama Prefecture, working in the gubernatorial office in the international affairs division there. Uh, I did that for two years. And during that time, I had a lot of opportunities to meet with business owners, both large and small, I actually participated in a startup kind of as a side thing, uh, bringing a, a fitness club chain from the United States to Japan, which is kind of fun. Following those two years, I moved back to the United States. I got hired on as at a translation company based out of uh, Provo, Utah. Uh, they, had, they were considering opening an office in Asia and had tapped me to come and open their office in Japan. Uh, that brought me back to Japan from about 2002 2003 all the way through about 2016. And while there in Japan, that during that time it was in Yokohama, and uh, we 
started a started a translation company specializing in intellectual property translation. Got to know the the legal scene, at least on the IP side, very very closely while over there. Um, and then that branched out. Um, I ended up uh, managing offices in Seoul, Korea, uh, Taipei, Taiwan, and Tianjin in China, as well as the main office that I was stationed at in Japan. Sunstone. <laughs> Oregon Sunstone is uh, the state of Oregon's state gem. It's a stone that's only found in the state of Oregon in the entire world, so we call it a one-source gem. And uh, the, the story behind that is, is that when I first came back to the United States, I was looking for clients that I could consult for that wanted to do business in Japan. And uh, I, I had done a trip down to the mines when I was little, and I decided to go again and bring Koto with me. And we went down there and we met a couple mine owners and uh, the stone is a transparent, a clear stone with a color core in it. And the color was red. When I looked at the stone, I said, that looks just like the Japanese flag. Would you like me to mark it for you in Japan? And that was my first client after returning from Japan for after 15 years there. And from there, it's just kind of snowballed into uh, what is now mine ownership and uh yeah, that's what I do some, some months out of the summer. I go down and play in the dirt. That sounds fascinating. And so is Japan the primary market for the Sunstone that you are that your company is selling, your, your mine, is that, that where you're sourcing all of your Sunstone to? That's exactly right, yeah. How are they incorporated into, I mean, what, what are you, is it going into jewelry? Is it, uh, where's it going? For the most part, it's going into jewelry or to high-end collectors and investors. So you've got a stone that's 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 sort of like, if you follow gemstones and jewelry at all, tanzanite became a big thing a few years back. It's it's sort of in the same category as that, is where it's only found one place in the world. It's a beautiful color, um, works well in jewelry, um, and it, it's extremely rare. So you mentioned that you had experience not just in Japan but all over Asia. So um, you know, I don't know if you know this about Fred and me, but we have spent a lot of years studying Chinese and spending time in country as well. And so I'm, I'm as a student of, you know, kind of as the world looks at China and is getting more and more disenfranchised with the way China does business, we're looking at, you know, Japan again, or other Southeast Asian countries uh, for alternative locations. So I'm very, this is a very selfish question on my part, but I'd love to hear more about the Japanese business environment and how it is similar or different, uh, similar to or different from other uh, countries in which you've worked, you know, from a business perspective, but also kind of just from a human perspective. When when people ask me that question, they're always they're sometimes asking about, you know, how does it compare to China? And China has a business environment that's more similar to the United States than Japan. Japan, Taiwan, and Korea all have similar business climates, and I might get in trouble for saying that, but. <laughs> But Japan is is still a very much a, a detail-oriented, relationship-oriented, big-picture business society. It's it's less transactional and more relationship-based, I think is the easiest way to, to say it. You're in it for the long run. You know, you play the long game or, you know, you'll just be a flash in the pan and you'll be gone. There's the same problems, the same issues, the same conflicts that occur in any business environment around the world. But it's like somebody took the volume dial and turned it down from eight or nine, where it would be like in the US, all the way down to one. Um, it's a lot that's not said 
that's implied. Being able to be aware of, of what's really going on around you is, is, a, is a key. And nobody's giving you hints. So how long does it take you to get the nuance down for working in that kind of environment where you just have to understand? I mean, are we talking micro cues from the way people move their bodies, eyebrow lifts? I mean, what kind of what kind of stuff are we talking about? Yeah, it would be similar to to feeling comfortable in, in, in the U.S., I think, you know, being able to read a room, understand you know, what people really mean. But you just have to understand that it's not just another language. It's another culture. And that defines everything in a new way. There is some carryover that's, that's globally universal. But for the most part, Japan is its own little, you know, environment that you get in. And then the shortcut, I think, is just to become a part of it. Like, just just focus on integration, whether that's on a company level, personal level, you know, as if you're an executive over there. We have we have a great example right now of a, of a corporate executive that didn't integrate well with the way that everything else was done with you know, with, with Carlos Ghosn, there's a lot around that. But I think that's one lesson that can be learned is that Japan still, even in 2020, the nail that sticks up is going to get hammered down. That still holds true. And so would you say that Japanese culture is fairly welcoming to people who show they're coming in for the long haul? You know, if you're making an effort at learning the language, at, at uh, understanding the culture's uh, would you say that that it is an outsider can go in and and really have a significant presence, even though they're still an outsider? So yes, it's going to be very difficult for an outsider, even if you have Japanese citizenship. If you look different, um, Japan Japanese society is set up with divisions, and these divisions happen from a very young age. They start at you know, elementary school level and even before that, where, for example, in, in, in the school system, and I think this is true in Korea as well, um, you know what rank you are in your class. Your, your, your classes are separated by, you know, your standardized testing levels. So you have all of the kids that got A's in one class and all the kids that got B's in another class. And then they're also ranked in between that. So there's that, that division culture is is ingrained very strongly in the Japanese people from a young age. That's not the case in all situations, but um, I think that you just have to, to understand that if, if you're going in for foreign investment, you're going to have fewer obstacles to that investment by having a Japanese country manager or having your all of your salespeople, you know, always be you know Japanese or, or, or Japanese uh, citizens. And then on the other hand, on, on like stru- structurally, there's different ways to set up companies in Japan. And some ways show that forward-facing. You know, we're in it for the long run. Uh, setting up a KK, for example, in Japan is going to look much better to banks, to your clients, to your customers than setting up a GK organization. There's just different different things that you can do to try and overcome the obstacles, but I just I can't emphasize this enough. At the end of the day, division is is ingrained into the culture and it's very difficult to be able to break through that wall. That's very interesting. I have to say I've been to Japan a few times having lived in in Asia for for over a decade, I, I had opportunities to do that, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed my time in in the in the country. But at the same time, I did find myself when I had the opportunity to to actually reflect on this. I I wondered if if I would 
enjoy um, living there as opposed to to just visiting. In, in part because of the things that, that you describe, I think that as a as a as a tourist, as a visitor, um, you're exposed to a very tiny sliver of of that culture, and in many ways the the, the efficiency, the 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 hardworking culture. I mean, you you those mostly work work in your favor when you're a visitor, right? Think things things work really well. Um, the, the trains are running uh, very efficiently. Everything is very clean. But of course, there's there's a there's another side to that, right? And I, I can I can certainly see how how working in that environment will will bring uh, certain challenges, and it's, it's certainly not not for everyone. Um, looking now at, um, go, going from the, from the, the micro, uh, levels, uh, to, to the macro, we'd love to hear your thoughts on the recent, uh, transfer of power in Japan. Um, what are your thoughts on, on the departure of, uh, Shinzo Abe, or I guess, I guess we should be saying Abe Shinzo now, I guess, I guess they're, they're, moving, <laughs> they're moving to the, uh, to the Chinese, uh, yeah, or, or the you know the more the the, the natural uh, format, um, but but in any case, what what are your your thoughts on, on Prime Minister Abe's departure, and what do you foresee uh, with uh, Prime Minister Suga taking over, uh, specifically with with regard to the business environment? What what will change, and what will not change? There are a few things that in the business field we've been waiting for for a long time. Um, and I was in Japan through the turbulent season where we couldn't keep a prime minister for more than a couple months. Abe Shinzo's, I mean, he's, he's known for his Abenomics and his three arrows there. One of the things that we, that we hope has to do with immigration reform. As everybody knows, the population is aging in Japan. I believe it's 30% right now that's over the age of 60. And then all of these people are going to be going on pension uh, sooner rather than later, which will put an extremely large load on the economy. Um, without healthy, uh, robust immigration and, and the system to support that, Japan will continue to slowly lose you know, its competitiveness in the world. One of the other things that we look for, that we've been waiting for for the longest time, the effective corporate tax rate in Japan is, is 35%, whereas all of the surrounding countries are at 25%. The corporate world has been waiting for for Japan to to lower the corporate tax rate from 35 to 25 percent um, for the longest time now. You know, the other thing that we look forward is um, their structural reforms. Uh, this is the one arm of, of Abenomics that has received the most criticism. I think was that there 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 have been little advances here and there with GDP and national debt. Um, that kind of bounced back and forth, but the structural reforms that you know allow you know women to make a fair wage, to give them the same opportunities that men have to to advance in companies and to eliminate the sexism that exists there, uh, these, these these structural reforms have really been lacking under Prime Minister Suga. Kind of hope that he works to accelerate that. Adam, I want to follow up on. On the issue of, of immigration, which I find to be very interesting, I one of the things that caught my eye the most when I when I went to Japan was seeing 
the the large Brazilian community that that was living there, especially um, especially in the city of Nagoya. That that's um, that, I, I mean I, I don't know if that's uh, if they have a particularly visible community, but that's that's certainly where I where I noticed it the most. But um, but 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 one particular question that I that I have, um, or, or one one thought that I want to throw out there, um, I was looking at the news the other day out of out of Taiwan, and during a visit by the by the president to to an air force base, she she was talking to to uh, to an air force to an airman who who um, was. Um, whose father I believe was, was from Ghana. And, uh, you know, I imagine there's, there's certainly a, a, a PR element to, to the whole thing, but, but nonetheless, right. The fact that, that they would want to, to highlight that was, was, was interesting in and of itself. And it got me thinking a little bit uh, about this and about this general topic. And uh, for, for me, I, I feel um, having spent quite a bit of, quite a bit of time in Taiwan, my, my fiance is from is from Taiwan. Um, it wouldn't surprise me, and I and I said said as much uh, on social media. It wouldn't surprise me uh, if Taiwan becomes a, a regional leader in terms of of changing the notions that people have regarding what it means to to be to be Taiwanese. Um, by contrast, um, I, I think based on on my experience, there could um, I'm by no means an expert in. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not really an expert in uh, in any of the in any of these countries. But uh, but uh, I'm, I'm, my my point is I I have lived in China for a while, and I can see China being pretty much at the other end of this. I can see I can see China really struggling with uh, with this uh, in part because of the own in part because of their own domestic issues regarding regarding ethnicity. Um, but where, where do you see, where do you see Japan, uh, uh, when it comes to this? I mean, on the one hand, you know, we can, some people could point out to, uh, Naomi Osaka and say, Hey, look, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're proud of her. And, 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 but of course she's, she's a superstar, right? It's a little, it's a little different, right? When, when somebody is, uh, that famous, when, when it comes to, to more regular, uh, folks, um, where, where do you see Japan on this? I mean, do you, do you think it's realistic to expect that perhaps within our lifetime we will start seeing a, a Japan where people start accepting those who look a little bit different as, as being Japanese, or do you think that it's, it's still going to be a, a very long time, if ever, before before that happens? So as you were explaining this, I, I got this image in my head of something one of my one of my colleagues used to do is like hold out one arm to hold somebody away and then beckon to them with the other, you know, beckon to them but keep them at arm's length. I've 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 thought about this a lot and I've asked the question, does Japanese mean is is it about citizenship or is it about ethnicity? And most of the time, you know, it's it, it tends to lean towards ethnicity. Were you born in Japan? Were your parents Japanese? Were your grandparents Japanese? You know, and as soon as you get start to get some deviation or variation in that, people are called halves in Japan. If you're if you're half Japanese and and half Caucasian, you're a half. Um, and there have been uh, a number of of, of of comedians and actors on television that have made a good living out of that. 
but again, it's it's still a very very obvious uh, distinction. One of those divisions that I was talking about before. Going back to the the start of your question, you talked about the the Brazilian population in Nagoya, and there's a few uh, pockets around Japan where, when there was the the immigration, when there was no work in in, in Brazil. There, were a, there was a major immigration of, of people to Japan, and they lived there for years and years and years, and then some of them moved back. Um, and now we're seeing some of the descendants of those people that moved back to Brazil come back to Japan on what's what the, the, I think they're called second or third generation visas. So they get automatic permanent residency because they have a family history of, of, of people in Japan. They followed the work is really what happened. And Nagoya is a huge manufacturing hub in Japan. They have all sorts of, um, you know, autom- automotive manufacturers are there and all of their second and third tier uh, suppliers are there as well. So there's there's a lot of work there, a lot of manual work. As we have the Olympics potentially next year in Japan, um, if everything clears up with the pandemic, you know, Japan is is being pushed to change a little bit. Whether those changes stick or not, you know, whether people with tattoos can go into hot springs, you know, these sorts of things, whether you're allowed to have facial hair at work without being stigmatized. Now, the, these things are, are still kind of, they're coming slowly, but they are coming. When somebody tries to push too hard on the system, uh, we see what happens. You know, we saw it with, with Carlos Ghosn. We saw it with Horii-san, the president of Live Door back years ago when he tried to buy out Fuji Television and, and the country basically just went slam on him and he went to prison. You know, we, we, we see that it's, it's, a, it's a very easy litmus test, Jonathan. You just, if you push too hard, the country's going to push back on you. That's very, very interesting. I'd like to talk a little bit about the demographic changes. I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm a business lawyer by, <laughs> by, uh, by trade, but I'm also very interested in demographics as Fred and I have talked about quite a bit in the past. So, we're looking at uh, you know Japan's aging population, as you mentioned. Um, Japan's need to automate a lot, uh, in large part because of the dwindling population, um, in order to keep you know the out the domestic output moving and the the dollars coming in or the whatever the foreign currency is coming in. Uh, they need to be able to continue to innovate. So, do you see? Um, you know, in, in the coming decades, do you see Japan continuing to do that? You know, even even if they're able to solve some of their uh, demographic problems with immigration or supplement it somewhat with immigration, do you see that Japan uh, does, is the Japanese culture to continually innovate, um, or is it or is it more just automate? I mean, I'm I'm very curious about that. Right? If I'll ask you just you know the same way in a shorter way, is Japan very good at innovation or only automation? Boy, that's a, that's a really good question. My experience has shown that they're better at automation than they are at innovation. Derivative innovation. So if they have, if somebody invents a television, they're going to do a better television. Somebody does a vehicle, an automobile, they're going to make a really good car. But when it comes to you know dynamic changes, it's like it's like steering a big ship. Really, I mean, it, it takes a while for for Japan to to get on board with things, and especially even new trends. You know, I'm very interested to see how the health industry reacts to an upcoming vaccine, you know, whether they're going to you know, just push it out or they're going to be very cautious going forward. That's not to say that there isn't innovation. There, there is a new wave of younger entrepreneurs that are out there that are willing to take bigger risks, that are, that are focused more on, on creating than augmenting. 
but again, if, if we're going to compare that to the the countries that are around, you know, to, to South Korea, to Taiwan, to China, uh, the Philippines, Malaysia, I mean, there there's a lot of motivation in those countries as well to to, to catch up and or to get ahead. The the old energy of Japan, you know, I, I really don't i i see I see a slightly increasing you know positive movement of a line on a graph. Um, but nothing that's going to there's there's no huge curves going up for what Japan is going to do. I think they're just going to keep it slow, keep it steady. I don't know. I, I would be uh, I would be pleasantly surprised to see a development in Japan that that shocked the world. I would be I would be very I would be pleasantly surprised to see that happen. It wouldn't be a global law and business podcast if we didn't ask a question about China just because of the way we are. <laughs> Sure. And our interests. But let's turn to let's turn let's turn to China. How are uh, the people of Japan and the businesses in Japan dealing with with China? And, and I think this is a, a particularly cutting question when it comes to Japan. We, we do ask this of, you know, we, we bring up the subject with many guests, but I think that um for, for, for the vast majority of countries, as important as their relationship with China might be, um, it's not going to have the, the dimensions that, 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 that this question has for Japan, right? So um, we'd love to hear your thoughts on, on Japan and China generally and, and how people in Japan view China. Um, and related, related to that, uh, and this is a question that's really intertwined with, with the question of China, um, are, are you optimistic about Japan's geopolitical trajectory? Um, obviously, China is is the the central challenge there, but there are other other aspects to that. So, um, tell us tell us what you think. <laughs> Japan is is very dependent on China for tourism. Um, with more and more money being made in China, a lot of that does come to Japan. Some some examples of things that I saw while I was there, just just in the the span from you know the late '90s up until just about four years ago, a lot more Chinese tourism, a lot more high end tourism, you know, golf, hot spring tours. You know, pretty much everywhere you go, you you'll see signs now in. You know, Japanese and English, as well as Chinese and, and most in, in some cases Korean as well. From a business perspective, honestly, I, I think that China is just in such a different dimension <laughs> when it comes to just pure labor force that it, that it's hard to say. You know, Japan is going to continue to you know maintain its. I don't know. Maybe we're talking about brand, but Japan maintaining its brand in the world as being the symbol of you know good manufacturing, reliable products, good guarantees and warranties on products, those sorts of things. I don't think Japan's going to change that much. So it really the ball is really in China's court or in South Korea's court or in Taiwan's court. You know what are they going to do? Japan is. I think that they will fight if their position is challenged significantly, just as it has in the past, I think that they will respond. But uh, is there going to be a proactive effort to place an even greater philosophical margin or a buffer between, you know, this is what China produces, this is what Japan produces. 
I don't I don't see that happening. I think Japan's just going to probably just try and do things the way that they always did and, and hope that that gets them through. I do know that the number of dollars that's flowing into the country from Thai Chinese tourism has has grown year over year, which has been very a very positive effect of of China's uh, growth and its strengthening of its economy. You know, it's a two edged sword, really. They're going to get more money from tourism, but then you know some of that manufacturing and some of that production is going to be taken away. And what are your thoughts about uh, the way Japan has been cozying up more to? Uh, Australia, U.S., uh, European countries as well, and not necessarily. I mean, I think you're right that that the Japan-China tie is so tight right now, and even with the incentives that the government is offering to have Japanese companies reshore some things back to Japan, uh, you know, they're not going to be able to do it 100, percent and I don't think they want to. Um, but how do you feel about that uh, that strategic decision to? Uh, to pull away from China a bit, or at least join the group that says, hey, we need to hold China to account rather than just let China do business the way China wants to do business? I, I think that's healthy. There's opportunities and resources in all of those countries. Um, I wouldn't recommend a foreign company that wants to do business in Japan going to Australia and trying to do business in Japan from Australia. But the migration of bringing factories from China and, and placing them in other countries, I you know, I it might not make the make the most sense economically, just straight up. But you know, if there's with the subsidies that are being offered, it could make sense. The more that you complicate an international business, the further as as far apart as China and Japan are culturally, it's still only a two-hour flight from Tokyo to Beijing. Then there, there's a one-hour time difference, I believe. So I, I feel like you know, it's you're you're. You're either complicating your 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 business environment and your ability to manage your company effectively with perhaps you know okay so the workers in 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 Australia or in or in another country in New Zealand are treated better and it's going to be better PR for the company and it's there's there's a there's a real trade off when it comes to business there. Adam, we have uh, thoroughly enjoyed having you on the podcast today. Uh, Fred and I enjoy learning from uh, everyone that, that is on, and certainly uh, Japan, so close geographically, uh, somewhat culturally. Uh, you know, we, we love talking about Asia, and so we appreciate you uh, taking time today to be with us, and, and we hope that our audience appreciates your expertise as well. We always like to end with uh, asking you, asking our guests for uh, any recommendations or what you've read lately or listened to or watched that you think would be of interest either on Japanese culture, business, or or anything else? Well, I always recommend people watching the NHK World broadcasts to, to understand what's going on in Japan. Those are pretty much a daily thing for me. If you're looking to understand culture, though, um, and you're just getting into Japan, just getting started, I always recommend rolling it back as far as you can to, you know, whether it's, you know, old classic Ghibli movies, uh, animated movies, uh, hitting some of the classics um, in black and white, you know, just trying to, to, to expose yourself to as much of what a Japanese person would have been exposed for, for those, you know, if you're, if you're just getting out of college, if you're 21, 22, those first 21 years of life, you're, the culture is really much established in, in the person. I've noticed that at least in Japan for me, that, that, that culture, you know, really does follow through and it really helps you make the right decisions and understand the people that you're working with. Um, 
as you get more and more into international business, it was a very big uh, hurdle for me, you know, having to do business in, in four different countries, plus have the parent company in the United States and my boss living in Germany, having to straddle all of that. Reading the classic novels, I, I really like uh, Haruki Murakami. I guess now it's Murakami Haruki. So his his novels are, are very, very good. Um, to read, there are um, you know the, the the news NHK. I always recommend anime. Um, if you do ever go to Japan, one thing that I that I will recommend that you do uh, soon after is to go into a McDonald's. the The cultural ex- difference is, I think, it's very poignant there. If you've if you've been to a McDonald's in the United States, go in and just compare your experience. I think that you'll find that you can learn a lot about what is valued. In, in the Japanese culture, in the business culture, by just doing that that comparison. I don't know if you expected a restaurant recommendation, but um, yeah, I don't really find myself uh, recommending McDonald's a lot. But for cultural differences, it's, it's a very good one. It's the other Big Mac index, right? It, that's exactly what it is. Excellent. Thank you, Adam. Fred, what do you have to recommend for us today? First of all, a general recommendation. And I think I, I might have made the, this just recommendation before but i but i think it's very um appropriate um if you ever find yourself on a on a long haul flight or maybe not even that long but your plane has in flight entertainment look for the foreign movies uh, i'm thinking specifically of of japanese and korean movies um but but it could be movies from from other countries but but those two in particular i mean uh, those are some of the markets that well, at least in my case, often when I find myself on a on a long haul flight, it'll be to to one of those places, Korea or Japan, or or simply an airline that 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 services those markets. And it, it's a it's a great way of of just picking up really good movies that you might not be able to to find elsewhere. Um, you know, m- my dad is a is a big fan of of, of movies, and I've, I've made some recommendations to him based on what I've seen on planes and he's had a hard time finding them elsewhere. So it just, just gives you an idea of what you'll be able to, to, to tap into. And, and definitely when it comes to Japan, uh, for, I know for, for a fact that there, there's very good Japanese offerings on, on Delta, for example, in terms of um, the recommendation I, I had in mind, Obviously, I'm a I'm a big uh, fan of the of the podcast medium. Not just not just a not just a contributor to to, to the world of podcasts, but also enjoy the the uh, the products that others put out. One of the one of the shows that I like most is Making Sense by by Sam Harris. But I'd like to recommend uh, specifically episode um, 217. Probably his most recent, although he might have had something in between. But um, in that show, he interviewed um, John McHorder um, on the topic of um, the new religion of anti-racism. And I thought it was a really good, really good show. Um, I mean, I, I enjoy intelligent conversations and especially when they have to do with number one topics that are that are very very current but also especially so when when the topics are difficult and and when it's hard to find such content so i thought this was a a really good take on on our our current 
historical moment and with a guest that that really brings a lot of legitimacy and weight to that that discussion. So I, I think um, again, as I've said on social media, you you will do yourself a favor if you if you take the time to to listen to that to that conversation. What about you, Jonathan? I'm going to go a little lighter, although some with some historical reference. I, I finally got around to watching Hamilton on Disney Plus, and I did it on a recommendation of my siblings after hours. Uh, I didn't watch it with my kids in the room. As they get older, I may let them watch. But uh, as an adult, uh, seeing the uh, you know the whole founding, and really, I had no background on Alexander Hamilton before watching this, other than knowing he was uh, had something to do with the money because his face made it on the, the ten dollar bill, I believe. Uh, I, I didn't know, you know, what to expect. I, I am a big fan of, of music and musicals. And so uh, seeing the, but I'm also not a big, uh, I'm not a big rap, hip hop, R&B guy. You know, I mean, I like, I like a lot of music, but I, that's not generally the genres that I go to when I'm listening to music. Um, so it took me a little while to get into it. It also took me a little while to get into Harry Potter, by the way. Okay. There were, there were like four Harry Potter books out before I finally dipped my toe into the Harry Potter world. So I guess I'm less of a bandwagon guy until I actually get on the bandwagon. But um, Lin-Manuel Miranda, I mean, the, you know, the lyrics were, uh, were clever. I mean, it all filled with historical references, a fun way of presenting the topic to, uh, to everyone. And, you know, out of any musical I've ever seen, I'm sure I learned more in that musical than anything else. And, and it certainly was enjoyable. So if you haven't taken the time to do it and you have a Disney Plus subscription, uh, I recommend taking a couple hours and watching Hamilton. I don't think you'll regret it. So Adam, want to thank you again for being with us. We appreciate your time. Uh, we look forward to hopefully catching up with you again and checking in on, on all things Japan and uh, look forward to, to that time. Thank you again. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. We look forward to connecting with you on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and anywhere else you want to find us. 